Welcome to the Story Paths podcast, where we explore links between story and culture. I'm Theodore Lowry, your host. I'm excited to announce that, as of March 2023, I've released my first on-demand creativity course. It's on Skillshare, nestled within a library of great creative courses, and if you're not already on there, I've got a link in the show notes where you can get a free month. My course is called Creative Writing, Brainstorming Story Ideas. In it, I guide you through finding ideas within your memories, working with them as symbols, and learning to deftly combine and recombine them into meaningful stories. There's a trailer for the course there in the show notes, along with the free link. Hope to see you in there. And so, we begin. Oh, what drew me to being in community? Hmm. Two ways I could answer that, I guess. One is healing. You know, I remember when it came in and I wrote it down. It was like, oh, I'm dreaming of this communal experience. And it felt so foreign from the world I had inhabited. Like I had tracked something essential, more or less absent from my experience. There was a wider communal net that I felt was missing. I want to say like a quality of self-reliance, but that ultimate self-reliance seems to inherently request the support of others, request integrating with others. An ability to embrace difference and tolerate diversity. Shared fate or mutual indebtedness. Face-to-face communications, mourning togetherness, supporting each other, projects, process, teamwork, and coming back together after conflict, wanting to be where we are, kindness through it all. Relational sovereignty giving each other space to be in our own truth and power while recognizing our inherent interconnection. The need for compassionate accountability and authentic love-based intimacy. And the other side of that is trauma, like modern culture, religion, different dogmatic ideals, rebelling against those forces in my experience with community what i discovered was you know a lot of that draw like i said is is a kind of wounding or is a kind of trauma and that's what i found has has driven a lot of people to community is this desire to like we really want to do something different than what's either been offered or what has been the world that someone grew up in or lived in they're really looking for something alternative and also a return to something almost like a return to something that feels like it's missing that feels very familiar but that we had never experienced i had never experienced community in the way that i was longing for i had this deep longing to be around people and have my life be woven in with others personal grief is between here and there so in some ways grief work is at the core of this community work too 
we need to be willing to grieve because if you start if you start going for your dreams you already start grieving the way you're never going to get them because they're not even possible in this day and age for most of us you know and then can you still go and those are the people i want to be doing this with there's a lot to unpack once somebody actually arrives in an environment that resembles that original longing the shine of it or the the novelty of it at a certain point fades and then you're left with the real work and that real work is hmm so many of us yearn for community and want to live in community but very few of us are actually ready if we're not caring for ourselves in many different aspects, we'll come into a community with a need for like, you know, I need validation. I need support. I need the community to be a certain way. It's got to be like this because I have this need. And that puts a lot of pressure on the community and starts to create power struggles. Like so many people are looking for community out there and often it will elude them. It keeps slipping away or they keep having experiences and it keeps being disappointing and I think that's because they need to draw that energy back in and focus inward and cultivate that inner village. You know, what's going on in our inner world gets reflected back to us. I try, I try to be gentle, you know. <laughs> I try to be gentle with what I say about this because it, I, I think it's really, really, really beautiful, that inclination. And I've had a lot of really difficult experiences in community. I have been burned in that pursuit many times and it's been very humbling you know in a lot of ways i was fleeing i was fleeing something in my search for community and as i track back well hey you know a lot of my my family was also fleeing that's how my people arrived to canada from ireland and and italy ireland was the more fleeing from ireland (laughs) less so from italy i believe I suppose there was something really humbling to be like oh i'm still living out the same story yeah no, you know, there's a real tenderness for me there. It, it, this, this almost like utopian ideal, which was the original drive, eventually hits a wall of reality. Story Paths presents Community Part 2 Tending Toward Community So welcome to this Part 2 of what is shaping up to be a three-part series. So I hope you're enjoying the ride and learning something along the way. I certainly am in making these. As a refresher, in part one, we got into what could be considered community compared to people just living together, how the ingredient of shared need is essential for community, and we got extensively into how predetermined values in a community could compare to emergent values, how those work together and the pros and cons of each, and also about how communities that are growing in the world today are within a larger system which is dysfunctional in many ways and that collective changes such as changes in land ownership laws 
are needed for this community to really emerge. We also talked about the place of story, song, and ceremony in community. And if you haven't listened to that episode, that's fine. This episode today does stand on its own, but if you want to go back and listen to the first part, then you'd probably get a bit more out of this one as well. So here in part two, our focus is on tending towards community, this path from where we are to where we want to be. And this is not a clearly demarcated path. This is also an emergent situation. So I nearly called this episode, Community is a Pain in the Ass, because in this episode, the real challenges are laid out that people face when they're trying to build community, when they're trying to learn to really be with each other and work through all that they've inherited in terms of ancestral grief and trauma, dysfunctional over-society, and all this kind of stuff. So we get into communication, communion, working through conflict, and we also get into nomadic community, which may well be the oldest form of community for humans and is less about just roaming through the landscape and more about cyclically tending the land. And we'll be hearing from Tyson Junkaporta about this from the Appalachian Band in Australia, who's working in the Indigenous Knowledge Lab in Deakin University, working on bringing in functional nomadic communities in the modern world. And many of you may have been in spaces of sudden intimacy and revelation while sharing grief and wonder with others online, and then been jarred to return to your physical life and realize that you don't know those people <laughs> in your life and that maybe you can't have those conversations with a lot of the people that you do know physically. So we'll also be talking about online community. And in this episode, I'll be talking less and letting the voices of those I'm inquiring from come to the fore. I'm still experimenting with the format of this podcast, and I'll probably keep doing so. Niching and branding and consistency be damned. You might also hear inappropriate singing here and there, sound effects along with the guest speakers. We're just going to see how it all goes. Take a breath. And we'll begin. A humble government that acts as advisor and not dictator. The heart of the matter, held by the pattern of each other. A kitchen. Unity without conformity, inner guidance with outer fellowship, heart, autonomy, freedom, held by resilient structure, processes of restoration, shared vision and ethos. I think the heart of community carries a few things. Acceptance, stepping up to help even when it's inconvenient to do so, good listening, generosity, and love. Taken from the answers to this question, what is at the heart of community on the School of Mythopoetics?
what is the need for community? If, as this episode suggests, community is a pain in the ass, then can't we just be alone? Cultivating ourselves, relating with God and the land? I've spent quite a lot of time on my own Often on a yearly basis, I'll, I'll keep there'll, there'll be this yearning to go and have a winter hibernation and go have like even a month or two or three just on my own. Jay Berriot speaks. But I wonder if I just created that community within well enough, would I need the external community? You know, would I just be able to go into the forest and be a hermit and just have my, my inner village and be content with that? I've wondered that as well. And at this point in my life, I would tend towards no. I'm thinking like these stories in India, for example, these sages, they're, they're going off and they're meditating for years and years. And then somebody comes and does something disrespectful or a woman comes and tinkles her ankle bracelets. And sometimes the sage will get so angry that they'll burn the person to ashes and they'll lose all the fruits of their ascetic activities. You know, And it kind of shows me that Although this sage is so accomplished in this particular way, and being able to sit in the mountains and just live on breath and light and be in this trance for so long, it seems they're very unaccomplished in the ways that a mother, a father, or anybody just in the rough and tumble daily life would be accomplished. What I've come to believe is that that's the main reason for us having these human experiences is to relate like all the other things that we do work and school and driving our car and you know building stuff all of this is just like the game pieces on the board that are giving our spirit souls if you want to say the opportunities to interact and relate visions of community can seem so tangible, so close. And this may be because they exist within our ancestral history, and perhaps spiritually as well. And yet, for those who've made attempts to be in bold, radically open and honest and real and loving community with others, many challenges have come. I think at this point, you only can approach community as a research question. It's pompous to say, I'm going to go do community. Everyone who's done that's failed, pretty much. You know, you can go try, and to try is to be humble enough to say we are researching. John Wolfstone speaks. We are not figuring it out. We have not figured it out. We are questing with it. I'm 32 years old now. Dan Roberts speaks. So I was about 20, 26 when I really started getting into this, really living into it, being on the land with the people in these experimental spaces. And before that, it was a dream, but it was a dream that I held probably really came in when I was about 19 the impetus towards this sort of thing and the healing that is wanting to happen 
it might take longer than my lifetime. When I reflect on this particular point, I'm especially thinking of community projects where I've been in with, with people who are in their early 20s, mid-20s, where... The vision coming in is that soon enough we'll be living in that utopian thing, right? And then the reality starts to come in of like really how much work there is to do and that maybe the work we're doing is for our grandchildren's children kind of a situation, right? Where we're, we're actually beginning this process of unraveling generational or ancestral trauma that's going to take a really long time. The only way this dream will really foster is if we can see a much longer arc. Because if it's about me having my day, me having my community paycheck, I, I will get too personally torn up and despondent and brokenhearted. <laughs> it will take me down. I went recently to a grave of my great-great-grandfather. He was the first one to come off the boat from Lithuania. Mm. He came chasing a dream of a better world. Mm. And I looked into his life. His life was fucking hard. Like the American dream, that dream of the spiritual and social and financial freedom mm. to do the things I've done in my life. My parents' generation almost had it. And it was his grandkid's grandkid that realized the dream he left for. Mm. And we are no different. We're at no different of a shore that we need to cross, like may only be my grandkids, grandkid or whatever. You don't have grandkids, but you know, in that sense, like the grandkids, grandkids generation mm -hmm. that sees that thing we are dreaming of. And can we connect to that deep sense of time? Because mm -hmm. that's where we'll have the endurance to keep walking towards a new world and face the heartbreak after heartbreak and keep, and keep going. And I think to do that, we need to also connect backwards to those ancestors and start to touch deep time. And I think our capacity to touch deep time is really at the center of the most core cosmological shift that would lead to community flowering on planet Earth. And it's not that I'm giving up on my own sense of fulfillment. I'm just extending my capacity to receive fulfillment to a bigger vessel. We each do our part and we find fulfillment of each person bringing their gift to the whole. So we need to see that also in time. Mm -hmm. And can I touch and taste that fulfillment that 200 years from now, some kid may look down at some grave that's mine and say, thank you. Mm -hmm. I had a role to play to make it so that kid could have a connected, beautiful life from day one. To what degree are you willing to serve something that might not, you might not see the results of? Right? Plant, a, plant a tree in the shade you will never sit in planting the vineyard of the wine you will never taste, right? That, that's a, that's a very mature request. And maybe it's a bit, a bit much for a 25 year old to take that on. I might suggest. Thinking about this tending toward community, tending toward community. Yes. This, this slower route, finding that edge where you're, you're pushing, but not too hard. It's like, well, what's the right dosage of community for the individuals and what does it take to actually make an assessment of a group and sort out what's its capacity? What can it hold? What can it carry? What can it do? You, know, you wouldn't ask the same thing of a two-year-old as you might of a 17-year-old. Let's say there's some deep trauma wounding living in the body. 
ultimately that stuck energy it needs to be neutralized and so it requires some level of contact like we have to go in and touch that place and we don't want to go too far into that otherwise we might get into re-traumatization we want to go in touch it contact whoa there it is i'm still conscious i'm still aware well i'm feeling all this stuff come up and i'm backing off i'm backing off i'm backing off and i go in and i go out i breathe in and breathe out and i think community has to be like that as well it ought to be something that one feels they can lean into and lean out of in varying degrees and you might be at a stage in your life where you really want to lean in all the way but good to have the plan already in place of, of when it's time to lean out well because that's also the person i became in community I, the guy who was always willing to lean in with others mm-hmm. because i believed it was helpful and, and i think to a strong degree it was but i also didn't know my own boundary my own edge of where like oh this is too much i need to resource in solitude So I want to bring up a word that is at the same time controversial and boring. And this word is conservatism. Some of those who were alive and young in the 60s and 70s who were striving for intentional communities and revolution and different ways of doing things, some of those who were alive at those times find an echo in the times we now live in perhaps a second attempt at many of the same things, or a continued attempt because many people have been striving for cultural change in the meantime. Now we can become cynical looking back at the 60s because many of those who were revolutionary at the time, living in communes and living off very little and hitchhiking around and protesting and so on, many of those eventually got jobs in the status society, found some stability of income, had kids, and developed more conservative values. So it can be easy to look at this and say the whole thing was hypocritical from the beginning. Look at them. They just became like everybody else. After all that talk about a brighter, more wonderful world. And yet, there may be a way to look at this with a more empathic eye, to look at this tendency from being radical to being more conservative with more generosity, to look at it with more generosity. And perhaps that this radicalism and this conservatism are not so incompatible. Younger people, people who are less attached to certain parts of their life. For example, if you don't have kids, if you don't have a wife, if you don't have a house or a lot of financial responsibilities, you have more uh, flexibility and agility to try that kind of thing. We need people who are more mature to, to check us. And those people tend to be more woven into their life, their place in the world, the position they hold. In the... Their preferences, their privacy, yes. their, their ways that they found really work for them. Yes. They're not yes. so willing to experiment with new things. So now the community project I find myself in, which we both are currently living here. Well, one, I'm the youngest 
more or less. So I'm around more mature people in general. And I really, really appreciate that because I find there's a generally more responsibility. There's almost a return to more conventional ideals and, and a real appreciation for some of what those ideals offer. Safety, support, structure, professionalism, right? So rather than me taking all of my wounding to the circle, right, to the community, I might actually be reflected now, hey, you should get professional help. <laughs> you know, you should go see a therapist. We should all have a professional therapist. We should have more of that as well as this, that those two modalities can and do serve each other, especially over a longer term. This conscientiousness, responsibility, it's all related in that way, mm -hmm. isn't it? Mm -hmm. And it's not totally absent from the culture we grew up in. No. In all our critiques of culture, <laughs> that's something, yes. it's not totally bad. What a hard pill to swallow that was, you know? <laughs> what a hard pill. In my youth, just so sure that this was all wrong, mm -hmm. right? Everything that was presented to me was all wrong. Uh -huh. And we needed something entirely new. I needed something entirely new. And, you know, getting to that point of, oh, maybe this wasn't all wrong. And, and it's the culture I was born in. Who that you vilified are you willing to learn from? Yes. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Who have you vilified? Yeah. And so, so, again, for me, my friends who have children and stuff, I really have a different level of empathy, compassion, and understanding for their position. I don't ask the same thing of them. I don't ask them to be willing to be as radical. In fact, I might be the person to say something more conservative to them. Well, hey, maybe, maybe don't do that. Maybe slow down. Maybe find a more contemporary conservative place for yourself so that this work can continue through your children's children's children, mm. right? And they're not reeling from the lack of grounding and maturity and safety, right? Because a lot of those social cultural systems, they, they do provide a ton of safety provide a lot of certainty. Certainty is really important. We got to have some certainty. I know there's, there's this perspective that like, that's the beauty of community and of tribe is that they can hold us and they can support us when we're struggling. And yes, I agree. That's true. Jay Berriot speaks. But there needs to be a solid enough foundation or container before that. So if everyone is coming in initially with these big needs, there may not be enough of a solid foundation to support everyone. Maybe a great analogy is a potluck. So if enough people bring food, there can be food for everyone. That could even be an excess amount to offer travelers who didn't know it was a potluck and came hungry. But if too many people come hungry and not bringing food, suddenly it would be like, oh, we can't support this. It kind of takes enough people who have that ability to care for themselves and to hold hold the container. I think that's the thing is that in our culture, because we've been so disconnected from community and there's all this separated living, there's this deep thirst and yearning for communities. And often people don't quite know how to do it because we're not particularly taught 
in school or in our life experiences. You could say a family is a small community, but many people grew up with, with very volatile or upsetting or difficult family situations. I mean, the majority of community land-based projects that I visited are really struggling because there's not enough people to really solidly hold the container. And there's so many people coming hungry, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's the time we find ourselves in. Although it sounds easy, let's just all be together and work together and share. Many of us haven't really learned the skills to be in community. There's real terrain to cross and it won't be crossed immediately or just because we want to. And like you say, there's not as many people who are experienced in that as there are people Mm -hmm. who need that at this time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a challenge. So the place that I live now, everyone has their own private space. Everyone has their own little piece of land, actually, their site that's theirs. And we're talking about boundaries, right? I'm just going to wander over there and walk into their house and ask them how their day's going. What is the custom? How do I approach that person? How do I approach their space? How do I invite them into depth if they want to or if they have time for it or if they're work commitments allow for it and not just always feeling like that's on the table. There's more focus on tending the land. This is a really important distinction I would make is if a community project is not wed to the land and instead the center fire is about something social, something human, that that almost inherently becomes an unstable situation. That wedding to the land helps to ground out all of these energies that are, are going to come up. You know, when you're saying that, I had this feeling like, you know, what if we're all trying to dance together, but there's no ground? Yes. It's, you, know, you can't. You, how do you do that? Whereas right. if the ground is there, well, we can all do some crazy dancing together. But the ground is there. It's, it's supporting all of us. Yeah. That n- knowledge of ecosystem, growing food, tending place. So the place that we live now is one where focus on the land is, is really a high priority. I would say it's central to what is happening here. And so my personal bullshit for lack of a better word and the personal dramas of the other people around here they rarely if ever become central and that's really 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 helpful because it's there's just this breathing room you know and and people tend to give each other more of a wide berth was a hard thing for me to fully embrace because i wanted it now you know i wanted it all to be beautiful and better now i wanted that more beautiful world Right? That was the original pull. It's like, I know something more beautiful is, is, is here. It could, mm. could happen. And it's in us. It's in us. But what I didn't know is what it really takes to do that and, and how long it might take. I came to this point of, I'm going to make a choice to be somewhere for a long time. 
At least that's what I, I'm attempting. Some people right now are really rooting down as a response to these times. And I get that, but I see people rooting down in their nuclear family, oh, you know, like, like they root down in their land base and they're just disconnected. Mm-hmm. Well, at least I should get my little piece of land. Mm-hmm. Like everybody know now that I'm in my thirties, it's what everybody's done. Mm-hmm. Actually, there's going to be so much movement mm-hmm. right now. If climate change or anything that's happening, there's going to be so much movement. And I think learning how to be resilient while in movement is actually more of an evolutionary tr- thing r- right now. I think we need both. We also need people that are maintaining watering holes that these people like us can land in. Mm-hmm. Some people are doing that really well. They're actually making little sanctuaries. Yeah. So you need both, but you need to really get clear. How is what you're doing contributing to something on a greater collective level? When I think about community, I tend to think of a farmstead. And of course, this is to do with my own cultural background and experiences. The oldest forms of community are probably not farmsteads, but are nomadic communities. Now, nomadic doesn't mean roaming randomly around the landscape searching for food. Nomadic communities actually tend to move in seasonal, annual, and larger-than-annual cycles, tending the land as they go. There's a great book called On the Other Side of Eden by Hugh Brody, where he compares sedentary farming communities to nomadic communities and actually makes the point that nomadic communities tend to be more linked to particular areas of land which they move through cyclically, as opposed to farming communities which tend to be expanding more into new areas of land. And if a band of people are moving across the same landscape throughout the year meeting their needs, harvesting, plants, hunting, gathering, then they'll be refamiliarizing themselves with that landscape in an ongoing way, tending the stories that are rooted in particular places and tending the ecosystems, acting as custodians for that land while meeting their own needs. And nomadic communities can be short in duration as well, such as during a month of pilgrimage. In India, there is an annual pilgrimage in the month of Kartik, which is in fall, where people roam all around the land of Vrindavan. Some do it mostly on buses, and some do it all walking, carrying tents as they go, setting up here and there throughout the land, throughout the duration of that month, buying food from the local farmers, cooking it. There's a long tradition of pilgrimage routes between large centers, miles and miles from the south to the north, back, east and west, and farmers tend to give something to the people along the way, and the people contribute in kind. And this pilgrimage is a bonding force. The pilgrimage is purposeful and also very challenging, so people become bonded together. 
And these mobile communities don't need to be officially spiritual or religious. There can be a blurry line between a camping trip and a pilgrimage. Hiking a long trail can also be a kind of pilgrimage, depending on the mindset. Like maybe that lake two days walk away, nobody's told me that it's sacred. But if for me it's sacred, then I can go there on pilgrimage and invite other people along. People give their obeisances up and down the length of the Ganges. So why not up and down the Missouri River, tending the places along the way, seeing what's gone right and what's gone wrong, cycling, knowing the land, being with the land. Of all my community experiences I had, perhaps the most powerful was a nomadic one. Once I was on a water pilgrimage, and we were walking this water pipeline from Southern um, California, these mountains, to Los Angeles, where Los Angeles had a like, hundred years prior stolen the water, and it was this spiritual pilgrimage, and we were acting as peacemakers to bring together the various constituent groups. We'd walk like 12 miles a day, camping in a new place. And we walked as a group in lots of coherence. We were counseling. The nomadic element brought in the element of pressure. Mm. So we actually needed each other even more. We locked in even deeper mm. than if we were staying in one spot. Mm-hmm. And the other time I was part of a circus in the Middle East traveling by bicycle. Mm. We worked in a, a refugee camp in North Jordan with some refugees from the Syrian Civil War. Mm. And it was amazing how locked in we got. We had this higher mission and we were moving that movement made us even more of a tribe. Tyson Junkaporta is from the Appalachian clan in Australia, and he works in Deakin University's Indigenous Knowledge Lab. Today he's been kind enough to share some of that work with us about developing nomadic communities in modern times. We are working with Indigenous systems knowledge, which is essentially a knowledge system and a method of inquiry that occurs over deep time and viewing all of creation as an irreducible whole in which everything in creation is related so you see the interconnections of all things often this relates in a very intensely localized perspective on the world uh, where we apply that holistic knowledge into local bioregions and communities. What's unique about the Indigenous Knowledge Systems Lab is that we turn our perspective outwards. So we're looking at the existential threats all around the world and we're turning our gaze outwards to examine all of those problems together and to come up with different understandings, different research projects and research ideas whereby we can mitigate some of those things in the long term. You know, so the impacts we're looking at are over decades, centuries, millennia. Particularly at the moment, we're looking at mitigating the results of climate change and all the knock-on effects of that. The systems collapse, economic contraction, ecological damage, biodiversity loss, extinction events, um, homelessness. And one of our major projects, the way into it is is through that idea of homelessness. Of course, from an indigenous perspective, once we start investigating that, we see that there's a lot more to it 
and that with escalating numbers of unhoused people, refugees, disaster survivors, itinerant populations in general, um, we have more than just a homelessness problem. What we have is a landlessness problem. People are not living in the landscape. People do not have access to the land. And the land is something that gives you all the things you need for free. (laughs) So people without economic security cannot access the things that they need from land, which is held as capital by those who do have those things. So landlessness is a problem. Now, where people do have land, they're forced to live in a very sedentary manner, which is it's not only unsustainable in the long term, it's also very precarious. You know, a sedentary population of a city or a town, usually along a coastline, which is the most vulnerable part of a continent, it's probably the worst place to build a community over the long term. Any community in coming decades and centuries that's unable to move with the landscape and with the weather is going to find themselves in pretty much a a constant recurring cyclic state of emergency and disaster response. We are exploring this very deeply over the next decade, doing a lot of research in what mobile community might look like, an itinerant community um, that's on a seasonal estate uh, where that community might move every few months uh, to another part of that estate uh, to care for that in a different way. We've got five years to start to do all the grounded research and start developing prototypes and designs of these communities and hopefully have a couple of prototype communities up and running. So the idea is to apply the Indigenous knowledge solutions and draw upon our unique skill sets and experience, but also the unique skill sets and experiences of our itinerant communities in the Aboriginal world, and then non-Aboriginal itinerant communities as well, a homeless population, refugees and potentially even retirees who just spend their time going round and round in cruise ships and caravans. Uh, There are a lot of itinerant communities in Australia, and it'll be worth consulting these. The idea will be to design these mobile self-organising communities on those seasonal estates, you know, like a lands where there's different parts of, of that of that estate, you know, high ground, low ground, wet, dry in different seasons, where different foods are available and different things are going on. So those movable villages, they'll have to be able to cycle through half a dozen locations on a, quite a large property every year. So basically, at each location, the way you live will be the thing (laughs) that is caring for the landscape. It's not a lot of heavy lifting. We're letting nature do the heavy lifting for us. The way you live will be disrupting the environment in ways that regenerate it seasonally. So, you know, the way you harvest food, the way you must burn grass in one place because the mosquitoes are bad there at that time of year if you want to go and get those things that are there, etc., etc., the idea is about re-embedding human beings back into the landscape, back into the ecological niche. We're not creating wild zones. In our way of looking at the world, indigenous knowledge, wilderness is sick country because it doesn't have people in their ecological niche because the land needs us. Most of the environments on Earth need us in it, doing the things that we're supposed to be doing. It's not rewilding, it's reinserting humans back into their correct ecological niche as a custodial species over time. And this won't be some wilderness survival, back to basics, 
you know, horrible thing. It will be, you know, quite simple housing, but be very comfortable housing and pretty much everything that a, that a person needs uh, provided and, and quite a nice life is what we're looking for. We understand that this is not going to be attractive to people initially and it's not going to be something that'll take off like wildfire in the next 10 years or maybe even 20 years, but certainly over the next century or so people are going to need to be moving. Millions of people, billions of people are going to have to be on the move and being able to live and thrive in mobile lifestyles. You know, we don't want this to be just random nomadism where people are just mad maxing across a blasted landscape. But people will be within bioregions that they care for and cyclically moving around them. Having these things in place and having these things fluent where there are people who are living this way and the research has been done and all the problems have been solved in how to live this way. So we seek to actually design buildings and communities that are less complicated and that also the the design of your village or community itself can change as needed and can be fluid. So, you know, if there's a dispute between families or people, then you can simply move your house. If somebody is doing the wrong thing in the community then it may be that they will have to move their house to the outskirts for a while and have a good think about what they're doing. (laughs) It's not just little micro-economies, but it's also micro-governance that we need to look at here and incorporate into the design. We know that the land gives us everything we need when we're in right relation with it, from nutrition to calendars to meaning-making to wellness to learning, everything. So the scope of our study over time, over the next five years and then another five years, ten years, it'll include designing microeconomies, governance models, food systems, mental health, intentional community design, technologies, built environments, ecology, deep ecology, etc., etc. We were hoping to complete at least one trial community after five years. This is the thing that ties all of the rest of our research in the lab together. And as I've said, this kind of community seems out of step with what the world is doing right now. But in an indigenous deep time perspective, we can see that it is going to become very important in the next few decades as these large sedentary settlements on vulnerable coastlines become increasingly unviable and precarious. So we're proposing long term over deep time, a large scale spreading out of those communities along the coast, sedentary communities, you know, over centuries and decades as a way of mitigating all the problems that we're facing around climate change, systems collapse, economic contraction, ecological damage, etc. Yeah, so that's what we're currently working on. It's striking to compare nomadic and sedentary communities. And for me, growing up, sedentary was pretty much the default. You buy a home and you stay there and cultivate it. Buy a farm, stay there and cultivate it. But this is Again, probably not the oldest form of community, or the most common form throughout the wider span of human history. Last year I was staying in the interior of BC here in Canada, where there's expansive forests, many of which have been logged, leading to greater fire problems. Now we're building homes that are like fortresses and defending them with fire hoses and sprinklers on the roof, and clearing land around them to try to help these homes survive living in the midst of a fully fire-prone area 
In the community I was living last year, in the course of three days at one point, there were four different fires that ignited very close by. And it made me think, why are we defending this fire-prone areas? Why are we pushing back against what would naturally happen? Perhaps it would be better to migrate to areas that are less fire-prone and then return in a different season. Of course, this would require changes not only in our individual lives, but in our collective lives and our collective rules about land ownership and such. And this is really something that's on the table. So it's interesting just to think about different ways of doing things. We could say there's sedentary communities and nomadic communities, but what about mixing the two? What about, as Tyson suggested, having land estates, large areas which are held in common, where people cycle through them throughout the year, and they exist potentially within a private ownership system? without having to change everything? And what about having people traveling between those communities, bringing in another more nomadic element, a meta-nomadic element, you might say, bringing inspiration and solution between these different communities? Traditionally, this has largely been the purview of traders and storytellers. We might also call them pollinators. My friend Che Berriot, whom you've heard from a little in this episode already, is a modern-day example. He's a builder and a bard who moves between different communities, rooted communities in this case, carrying ideas between them, like pollen on the fur between his wings. You've traveled, especially in BC, in Canada here, between quite a number of communities, intentional communities to different degrees and in different ways, and communities in cities, you know, people don't necessarily live together, but they're bonded together in some way. And you've called it being a pollinator, bringing thoughts and ideas and practices and inspiration between these different communities. You spoke about the importance of people being rooted in place, holding it down. And I wonder if you speak a bit about the importance and the nature of that role of threading communities together as a pollinator. Yeah, I felt inclined to travel around and visit communities for a long time. In my 20s, I went down to Central America and visited several different places and then traveled back up the West Coast of the United States and visited several different projects. What I kept seeing was Pretty much everywhere, community is, is struggling and trying different things and trying to figure it out. And, and often one of the biggest difficulties is interpersonal tensions and communication breakdowns and power struggles. Now there's many people involved in sharing a piece of land, 
maybe if they're doing food together, then they're sharing kitchen and there's cleanliness and a lot of tasks and logistics to be done to maintain the life that they want and all these different ideas and desires about how it should be arranged. It starts to bring up our, our unconscious stuff to be worked out and there's so much growth and heart expanding awareness to be found. But because those people that are living in that space, they're so invested in it, they can get very polarized or they can very get very set in their position. And they can easily get very upset about things because they're so invested in it. And that's where there's the value of kind of a, a neutral party or a visitor coming to bring some fresh energy, to bring some perspective, to bring some story, to bring some ideas, even just bring some witnessing and some compassion and presence for those people that are in that container, the traveler or the pollinator or the networker that's coming will not have the same level of investment in it being one way or another because they haven't put their finances in or they're not committed to living there for a long period of time. So they can have the ability to see different perspectives and see the validity in them and can then reflect reflect that back. And even just appreciation, be like, wow, I love what you guys are doing. Like This is so beautiful. This may help people who are in it day to day who may start to take it for granted kind of and reappreciate the beauty and the blessings that they have by seeing someone else's deep appreciation and enjoyment of it. It's reminding me a bit of if a really great aunt and uncle came to visit. Yeah, a, a pollinator has some precious gifts to offer. And it's, it's not easy lifestyle. It definitely requires cultivation of that inner village to be able to be on one's own moving from place to place. I do find myself getting quite overwhelmed at times and still trying to figure out how to, how to best keep my routine and my health and my needs cared for while moving and adapting to different situations and different lifestyles and routines as I go and, and connect with different communities. And I think it's important to distinguish between travelers who may come and visit a community once and never return as to when I think of pollinators, you know, I think of like a bee who has its hive in a particular location and has a certain capacity for the distance that it can fly to gather and go between different flowers and trees and bushes. There's something about coming back to communities again and again. And this builds a relationship over a long term. If you think of you know, people who have known you since you were young, who have seen you grow up through different stages of your life and now see you as an adult. And they, they have a much deeper appreciation of where you came from and, and maybe struggles that you've been through and, and the courage and strength of character it took to come to where you are now. And so this is my intention is to cultivate relationships with a few communities that I can, I can visit perhaps on a yearly or a seasonal basis. I just have that, that longevity of relationship that knows nuances from the history that is going to help me inform when I'm out on travels or seeing other communities. I mean, like, oh, right, that community I visited a few months ago was having a struggle with this type of situation. And now I'm seeing this other group of people that has found a creative solution for it. I'll have to make sure that when I visit the other community, I, I share a story about how they overcame it. There's, yeah, something really precious in consistency or a return uh, of pollinators or networkers on an ongoing basis. 
couldn't really talk about community these days without talking about online community. Now, one might be cynical and say, well, that's not really community. You're not working together day to day, not dependent on each other for meeting basic needs about food and shelter. And yet, for many of us today, some of our deepest connections are with people that are not physically in the same place as we are. It's wonderful and problematic. I remember going to a grief ritual online and sharing deeply and intimately with people that I hardly knew their name, and hearing their story brought me to tears. And I've never spoken with them since. And if they were in my immediate community, perhaps I would have a harder time opening up to that extent because the risk is higher that if some trouble comes between us because of that intimacy and that revelation, then that will be a challenge when we work together day after day. But it seems to me that it can't be a substitute, that this kind of intimacy and realness is something that I need with the people around me. There are topics I'm deeply drawn to, which are at the heart of groups online, where they explore them wonderfully and deeply. It's challenging to find that interest in the groups around me. And yet, as I depend more on those online spaces, I may seek those connections less from the people around me. So online community is a thorny, problematic, and wonderful gift a gift that also takes. Dan Robert, whom you've heard from in this episode, started the online school, the School for Mythopoetics, along with Ian McKenzie, John Wolfstone, and others. I asked him to tell the story of how this school came to be and how it actually developed from their physical community. COVID comes up. You know, COVID was a big part of why there was a transition to online. I was living in the second of three of the major communal projects I was living in. There was only seven or eight of us in this one. We were coming in with experience, specific practices. A big focus of that project ended up being men's work and women's work. The men's initiatives with those particular guys were really successful. Specifically, I'm talking about Ian McKenzie. His podcast, he started while we were living there together, The Mythic Masculine. And at the same time as that was happening, we had started a men's circle at the place we lived and we had invited other men from the community. And Ian and I had found this kind of emergent intelligence between the two of us. That all culminated in we held a multi-day men's retreat at the place we lived where we asked the women to graciously leave for a couple of days and we invited, we had about 20, 20 guys when we did this intensive weekend, which went 
really, really well. So as we were in this consideration of, hey, should we do another one? You know, where are we going to go with this? COVID hit. And, and the arrival of COVID meant, well, we couldn't do any of that. We couldn't invite people from the wider region to come and be in an intimate space with us for a few days. Ian really introduced to me the power of myth and story and what we call now mythopoetics. Ian started an online group to act as a container for folks who were finding a lot of interest in the podcast. And so that was originally the Mythic Masculine Network. There's a lot of women who are showing up to that space and who really wanted to be involved in that. And so the name Mythic Masculine Network didn't actually match the quality of work that was starting to unfold there. And so there's a need for a wider classification. We were talking about the School of Mythopoetics. So eventually we discovered the name and that felt really true. And the model of an educational space versus just a communal space of like, hey, come and hang out. And that's made all the difference, really. It's going really, really well. And it's interesting that the online community emerged from the physical the online space grew out of a necessity for men to gather together around the topics being discussed in this exploration of what is masculinity in today's day and age. And then from there, a lot of women are interested and they're bringing wonderful things. There's the necessity to open it up more. Mm. I want to ask you about the relationship between online community and physical community and also online community and land. So in an online space, you got people who are in different locations. You know, some of them are nearby. You might meet them. And we live in the same community now here, and we're in that community online together. Mm -hmm. But, you know, most people are in different places, various places. And there's a beauty to being able to connect with the people in that online space and share those interests and speak about what's really meaningful, you know, truth circles and learning about one's own ecosystem and sharing it with others and one's mythical journey and many things. And at the same time, it's an online space and you were all in these boxes and the text and, you know, we may or may not meet each other face to face this year. So I'm curious about your thoughts about the relationship between the online community and physical community. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, that is very much an active edge question Mm -hmm. for me. In this foray into online community, I see new people come in. They come with the same. After a couple of weeks, there's this moment of, wait, this is all online. What do I do with this? Like, wow, I found these people who really are speaking the same language as me. And they only exist on this screen right now. You know, that's tough. That can be a really tough moment. The leadership team, we return to that question a lot too. How does this find ground? And I mean like really find earth, find land. Ultimately, if what we're doing here doesn't cycle into and feed on the ground, in-person interaction, we might say it has no value. So... How does somebody come to a space like this and then integrate whatever they learn or gain or experience with with these people who are distant enough to be safe in a way? There's something safe about it, right? I can open up things with people on a Zoom call that maybe I wouldn't with other people. 
because well once the zoom is over it's over that's such a strange dance you know i really obviously i'm i'm in that right the content of my on the land community is very different actually now than the content i explore on the online space i'd say our connection you and i is where a lot of that i find stitched back together a conversation that might happen on the school we can have that in person like i see your face we move around we joke around there's the a wider fuller spectrum of human experience we're talking while we're out in the in the fields working planting the peas and we're also talking about some mythopoetic whatever that's where it's all coming together what's the important piece there i have to have a theo right i have to have somebody there who is also carrying both of those language sets or is walking in both of those worlds and for some people they may be alone right in the place 100%. where they live a lot of them a lot of them a think. lot of them yeah that, that becomes a big hurdle like well how yeah. do i bridge the gap how do i begin to speak about these things that are so important to me that i'm conversing about online with the people in my life who don't seem to have an innate interest in it like i do yeah it kind of i'd say it asks you to be a leader if you go to the online space and there's like, wow, this is it. Here it is. All these people are doing this. And then you don't have that anywhere in your life, physical life. I say there's almost like a duty or a responsibility that you begin to create the space in your in-person life for that to happen. And maybe that means you have to step into a quality of leadership that you haven't before. The problem is that we are fighting a culture that almost prohibits us becoming elders. Jesse White speaks. Every step of the way toward elderhood is a battle. And yet some people have managed to be making their way toward that. And so we have the internet and we have podcasts and we have accessibility to the few that are paving that way. So there is this gratitude for the internet and all of the wisdom we can acquire. But I also acknowledge the way that those technologies destroy community and can harm the ways that we could act in the here and now in our own ecosystem. And they distract us. So I think as a tool in this time of emergency, of seeking a cultural resurgence, then we need to connect and then really learn and practice how to weave these things into our day-to-day actual life and not depend on the internet as our source of wisdom but how we might be capable of making ourselves listen again to the emergent wisdom of the ecosystem and how we might teach ourselves how to do that better. If we can learn that, how to do that, then we don't really need the internet.
Francis Weller speaks about community and grief because of not having community. I did a course with him online some time ago. I got the sense from the questions that most people weren't in community in the way they wanted to be, and that a lot of people didn't even have one other person that they could have the conversations with that they wanted to have. And his answer was, in effect, if you're hungry, become bread. Yes. You yes. know, if you, if you want the company of elders, become an elder. And it's a hard answer, it's right? It's a hard answer. It's a hard answer. Oh, man. It's like, I've never really come into the community my heart yearns for. Yeah. I've never experienced that. Yeah. And now I'm meant to help create it. Exactly. Like, I've never, I've never experienced yeah. it. I've got no model, lived model to go by. It's really, a, I would say, from my experience right now, it's a, it's a terrible burden. Hmm. It is a terrible burden in a way to uh, be tasked with that. It feels like a call to maturity. To me personally, it feels a little bit of a slap also. And like, <laughs> you know, 100%. do it. You can attempt this. You know, as I touch that right now with you, underneath that, there's a resentment. Yeah. Like, like, what? what? What the fuck? What the? <laughs> you, what? <laughs> right? Like, what a befuddling answer to that, that wondering. And I turn to be like, well, what about all the holders? Where... Where is it, you know? Why should I be at 32 tasked with such a thing? Or like, you know, I know all these younger people who are on the same track. And man, that's a, it's a hard thing yeah. to be like, yeah, you know, nobody's coming. It is what it is. It is what it is. You know, this is what you're born into. Uh-huh. There's not a perfect community somewhere. You can learn bits and pieces here and there. You got to do a lot yourself without ever really having experienced it. Yeah. It That's is a call sure. to maturity. And and I can't say I'm totally happy about it. I'm not happy about it. <laughs> <laughs> I think because the the pathways to maturity uh, suck. Yeah. There's, they're, or they're just like not there. Right. Like what does it take to, to achieve genuine maturity uh, when one could say we do not have a lot of contemporary examples it reminds me a bit of learning an ecosystem like when you first go into a particular forest, it's like, well, it's a bunch of trees, you know, there seems to be some ferns, the kind of generic understanding of that ecosystem. And then gradually it's, oh, there's this kind of tree in this kind of environment. And there's this kind of tree when there's a little more water. And then there's this moss that grows here and this fungus. And it feels a bit like an ecosystem and community, yes. doesn't it? It's like there's this principle and it interacts often in a particular way with this other principle. You know, it's like privacy and communal space, openness and being closed. There's holding to what's been decided and then questioning what's been decided. These are the trees and the creatures, so to speak, in the ecosystem. How might they interact? And of course, it's dynamic. It's not formulaic. But you do start to get some principles after a while, some familiarity with it.
We've got a lot to draw from as inspiration, creating community, moving forward. There's cultures other than our own, the deep history of our own cultures, new ideas coming forth, the wisdom of the earth. But ultimately, we're working with the situation we have now. And I feel community is really necessary to face the challenges we now face. The solutions are there, but somehow we're not able to gel to face them together. That way of being with each other, that inclusion of many different points of view, that support through changes of perspective, must be there if we're going to, together, face these challenges that may well bring us down as a species. done our work as a culture, quote-unquote, borrowing, learning from indigenous folks and others that still have culture or have some relics of culture, and we still need we still need that some, but we need to start grafting that onto our own inspiration and own life ways, but drawing not from the blank woo-woo canvas of New Age ritual, but drawing from our own ancestral origins also. There is some reservoir of tools in my ancestry about these life ways and ritual, and I can draw on those because they're my fucking ancestors. You know, I'm not borrowing and there's no ancestral thing I can just recreate fully. So I have to like combine some elements of all my teachers and my ancestors and then listen in the moment for what is truly emerging now then with other people, what's emerging from all of us. It's listening for that wild genius in each of us and in a group. You could say that emergent self-organizing principle is that wild genius that happens between a group of people. I reflect on it, you know, my life is all the better for it, really, truly, and I wouldn't change it, but I would caution myself, you know, now at 32, I would like to have had a a sit down with myself and be like, hey, you know, this is what you're in for on some level and to start to prepare for that and to temper that irrational optimism, this sense like everything will be better once I'm with other people in this way there's this unspoken sense of we could heal anything if we all were just together and if we just cared about each other and the reality that I found was that that was not true it's so beautiful to give myself to that composting process and that deep longing in me the original longing Sometimes, you know, it feels like, oh, is it ever going to be fully met? (laughs) How many times? And lastly, just thanks to anybody who's actually listening to this and who's made it to it. I don't know how much of this is going to make it into your episode, but if um, somebody wanted to actually listen to something I had to say, I really appreciate that. All the successes and blessings upon you. So thanks for listening. This episode has been quite a journey to create as these episodes are. And I'm appreciating this 
chance to explore these topics and this excuse of having a podcast to inquire from people about things that are meaningful to me. And if you'd like to support this work, you can go to Story Paths on Patreon. This month, I'll be releasing the full interviews there for patrons. If you'd like to hear the unedited versions, I'm on Instagram at storypaths underscore podcast, where you can comment on the episode. We can get into some discussion there. That's currently the place where that's happening. And next month, we'll be getting into resolving conflict in creative and interesting ways in community, and also a foray into the wider world of the wider-than-human community in which we find ourselves here on the wondrous planet Earth, spinning around this particular sun. Until next time. Boom. Thanks for listening to Story Paths, where we finger threads weaving story with culture. Before we go, I'd like to remind you of my new course, Creative Writing, Brainstorming Story Ideas, that is now available on Skillshare. If you're looking for a playful, creative space, this may just be for you. You can find the trailer and a link for a free month of Skillshare in the show notes. And as we part, I send my best wishes for you and yours. In the words of the Irish poet John O'Donoghue, May you realize that the shape of your soul is unique, that you have a special destiny here, and behind the facade of your life, there is something beautiful and eternal happening. And so we close.